all right. You can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 27. While you're doing that, I uh, forgot to mention earlier that uh, Sandy Chamberlain is with us today. Sandy, it is so good to see you. Sandy will be moving to New Hampshire in a few weeks, so make sure that you get a chance to uh, say hi and goodbye and give her a hug, and that would be great. Thanks. Turn to Psalm 27, or scroll down there. Uh, If you have an actual Bible, you'll open your Bible in the middle, you'll probably go left. So, that would be great. This is the second sermon in our series on prayer from the Psalms. And uh, so this one is uh, going to be interesting. So... Let's read it. Psalm 27, verses 1 through 14. Listen carefully as this is God's word. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to the Psalms again this morning to learn about how to deal with our own anxiety and how to deal with our failure to pray. And Lord, this is hard to admit. We don't like having to face our fears and anxieties. We would rather they just go away. And for some reason, we don't think our prayers are enough. In fact, we're pretty sure they're not, so we just don't pray. So Lord, teach us what to do, teach us what to say, teach us what to believe, teach us how to pray. Keep us from being so anxious that we forget to seek you. So build our faith, draw us near, and help us learn from you this morning. And so we pray, speak through this psalm of David this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus 
For in his name we pray. Amen and amen. Now, it's interesting. I asked this of a number of our younger adults, and uh, none of them knew this movie. But some of you may remember the 1991 movie City Slickers. Okay, some of you remember that? Very good. It was about a big city guy named Mitch Robbins, played by Billy Crystal. And uh, he sells radio ads for a living. And Mitch is having a classic midlife crisis. And so Mitch and his equally bored midlife crisis friends, Ed and Phil, are going to head out west for an adventure in order to celebrate Mitch's 40th birthday. So they decide to go on a two-week cattle drive, moving a herd from New Mexico to Colorado. Now, the trail boss for the cattle drive is an old cowboy named Curly, played by the legendary Jack Palance, who is just an awesome movie character. And in what I think is one of the great cinematic scenes... Mitch and Curly are riding side by side, just talking, when Curly just stares at Mitch and asks him, do you know what the secret of life is? And Mitch looks dumbfounded and says, no, what? And Curly holds up one finger. And Mitch says, your finger? And Curly just shakes his head. He says, no, one thing, just one thing. You stick to that, and everything else don't mean a thing. He was a little saltier than that. but So Mitch asks him, so, what's the one thing? And Curly just points at him and says, that's what you got to find out. It's not a bad question. It's not an original question either. Jesus mentioned one thing several times. You lack one thing, says Jesus to the rich young ruler in Mark 10. One thing is necessary, says Jesus to Martha in Luke 10. One thing I know, says the formerly blind man whom Jesus healed in John 9. These declarations about one thing vary. But they all recognize where there's moments where you have to focus Now, in Western culture, we're used to multitasking, partly out of apparent necessity, partly out of choice. And we think we can keep adding more things to our schedule without asking what we're going to give up in order to create room. And we aren't particularly good at standing back and asking what things have priority. It's hard to know that moment when you have to focus, and it's even harder to do the focusing. Perhaps the reoccurrence in Scripture of this expression, one thing, indicates that it's not just a Western problem. One thing, says our psalm. The fuller expression in Psalm 27 is, one thing I have asked of the Lord. What you ask for tells you who you are. What do you want is a telling question when God asks it, of Solomon in 1 Kings 3. Or when Jesus asked it of another blind man in Mark 10. Both stories indicate that the person could have given other answers to the question. But here we turn to Psalm 27, and we see King David has found his 
one thing. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Psalm 27 presupposes the situation of being under attack. People are watching David. And if he's anything like us, then he wants them to be given their comeuppance and to be protected himself. But the Psalms, one thing, lies somewhere else, somewhere beyond those practical concerns. The one thing is to dwell in the house of the Lord. Now, this hardly means living in the temple. As far as we know, no one lived there apart from God himself. So the expression is a metaphor for living in his presence, living in his household, and therefore being under his protection. It makes everything else but the one thing fall away. These expressions suggest another angle on the psalm's understanding of how life with God works. It assumes that we have a past experience of God's delivering us. Coming into God's presence reminds us of that reality. It also brings home the reality of what God intends to do for us, and thus builds up our confidence and our capacity to live in hope and to look forward. But that's hard. And it's hard because most people today, including most of us, are riddled with anxiety. Now, some of that anxiety is due to circumstances. Some of it is medical. Some of it is relational. Some of it is simply due to sinfulness. And don't forget, you can always answer D, all of the above. However, if we are to be living in hope, and living in hope relates to living with a focus on one thing, not hope that we'll be able to achieve and get everything we want, but living in hope that gaining that one thing then we have to ask with Mitch, so what's the one thing? And thankfully, the Lord's not like Curly, and he doesn't tell us to figure it out. He's way more gracious than that, and he gives us Psalm 27. It's good news for all of us who are facing anxiety. For all of us who are facing anxiety. Now, so many of the articles and books that I survey, and I'm constantly doing that, and whenever I see a book or an article, usually online, saying something like how to overcome worry or how to overcome anxiety, almost always what they say is, you know, the things you worry about may never happen, and it's a waste of time to be worrying about things that may never happen. Instead, you need to visualize a positive future that is satisfying and focus on that. Visualize that future, focus on the positive. Don't sit around and visualize all the things that could go wrong. Is that what King David does? No. What's he doing? He's doing the opposite of what all the articles say. He's imagining the worst things that can happen. Verse 3, though an army encamp around me, Though a war arise. Why? Because he wants to have a strategy for dealing with fear and anxiety that can stand up to anything. Now, if anyone has a reason for fear and anxiety, it's David. 
When he wasn't at war with neighboring nations, he was being hunted by his own people, sometimes by his own family. His life was almost always at risk. And the Psalms are filled with the testimony of the terrors that he faced day after day after day. But even with evil on every side, he can say, Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And I look at that and I said, of whom shall he be afraid? How about Saul? Or all those foreign armies? Or all those traitors in his own ranks? The real question should be, of whom shall he not be afraid? But somehow David is able to stare defeat and death in the face and not fear. And not live his life riddled with anxiety. He's seeing more than his circumstances. Something beyond his circumstances. Something that gave him comfort and confidence even when it seemed he was likely to lose everything. He saw through the threats to a God who promised to protect and deliver him. David doesn't listen to the advice that says, maybe none of those things will ever happen, so don't think about them. David imagines the worst. And we get the fierce realism of the Bible here. The Bible is a very realistic book. It shows us uh, everybody's, their sins, their flaws, their errors, and uh, it puts it all out there. I talked with the teens today when Paul said uh, that I'm an example of being a chief of sinners. And I said, who wants to be that example? Like, for the rest of time, everybody's going to look and say, oh, that guy. Nobody volunteered. The Bible is fiercely realistic. And the Bible says you can have a way of dealing with anxiety and fear even if you're assuming the worst things that can happen. He says here that your mother and father forsake you, that an army encamps against you, that a war rises up. Think about it. It doesn't matter what's driving your anxiety because you can use this strategy on anything. So what's the strategy? Whatever it is, we ought to look at it pretty carefully because David has real enemies with real weapons. They are people who are literally after his life. And as far as I know, that's not true for most of you. So if David is able to find a strategy that enabled him to deal with the very real anxieties and fears of his life, don't you think it ought to work for the rest of us? So let's see what this great strategy is. He focuses on three things. And the first thing is the protection of God, verses 1 through 3. That's the first blank in your bulletin, if you have that outline. Verses 1 through 3, the protection of God. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. I was writing most of this on Thursday, and I got to this part. I checked the news headlines. 
There was a terrorist attack in France, killing at least four children and injuring several more people. There's a new counteroffensive in Ukraine using Western tanks, just the latest development in a war that's going on longer than anyone expected. And Canada is facing huge wildfires, but they're sharing the suffering with the winds bringing the uh, dark, smoke-filled air wafting over the East Coast. That was fun. It's a stark reminder that hardly anyone is safe anywhere anymore. Or are they? Darkness, depravity, danger seem to lurk on every corner and in every nation. But God is the sun for the darkness, salvation for the depravity, and a stronghold for danger. Psalm 27.1 is the only place in the Old Testament where God is actually called light. Now Jesus claims that for himself in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, this is where we get it. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? One thing all children fear is the dark. Even as adults, we fear the stormy uh, darkness of international terrorism or global recession or national unrest. And in the dark storms of life, God gives us light. A light that will guide us safely to the shores of his love and his care. The word used here for salvation is elsewhere translated as deliverance. God delivers us from our own depravity and either from or through the depravity of others. Daily, he delivers us from the power of sin in our own lives and through the practice of sin in the lives of others. He is, this verse says, he is our stronghold. It's a word that means fortress. Elsewhere, the Bible says that he is a strong tower for us when we're under attack, a sheltering tent to protect us from the heat of persecution and opposition, and a solid rock to keep us above the floods of pressures and strife that uh, constantly surround all who stand for God. And we get all of that in verse 5 in our next section. It says, For he will hide me in his shelter, the day of trouble, he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. We get God's protection because we have come into his presence. And that's what David focuses on next. The presence of God, verses 4 through 8. The presence of God. David talks about his one thing, his strong desire, starting in verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy, I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Think about it. Though an army encamps around me, I will sing and make melody to the Lord. You're in that opposing army encamped around we're about to get this guy. We have him surrounded. 
is that music? I, I just can't imagine how they would react to that. I think half would be like, he's lost it. And the other half would be, he's mocking us. I don't know how they would react. But David is so focused that I'm in the presence of God that that army doesn't matter. Now, here in these verses, David isn't asking to move into the temple. As I've said, he's asking for the life of the temple, the dwelling place of God, to move into him. In those days, uh, the Levites lived next to the temple. They performed all the sacred works of worship. And this same attention to and presence with their magnificent God is something that David wants in his own life. He has a desire to spend all his days in the house of God so he can gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. He longs to be with God forever, a promise that God makes to all his children. And so he writes in verses 7 and 8, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. There's a difference of being aware of someone's presence and actually being in their presence. David seeks not just to be heard by God, but also to be seen by God, to have, if you will, a face-to-face encounter. Now, many of the patriarchs in the Old Testament could claim that they have been in the presence of God. Adam in Genesis 2, Abraham in Genesis 12, Isaac in Genesis 26, Moses in Exodus 3, and again in Exodus 33. The prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 3, just for starters, we could go on. And those encounters were, got, were far from fearful. They were personal. Usually they were a little fearful at the beginning. But they were very personal. And they showed each individual the intimacy that God desires to have with his people. David isn't just inviting himself over to meet with God. God has made the first move. We never have to barge into God's presence or make an appointment in advance or settle to just see one of his associates. Uh, J.I. Packer, a great Anglican theologian, says, the the Christian's life in all its aspects, intellectual and ethical, devotional and relational, upsurging and worship and outgoing and witness, is all supernatural. Only the Spirit can initiate and sustain it. So we can be confident in the presence of God because God is constantly inviting us into his presence. And David is telling us that even in the most fear-inducing, terrifying circumstances, we can seek his face. And when we seek his face, we see his face. We never face darkness, danger, disease, or disaster alone. Sometimes God holds our hand and walks with us in our fear. Sometimes God puts us on his shoulder and carries us above the fear. Sometimes God wraps his arms around us and shelters us from our fear. But regardless, we can be confident and take courage in the presence of God. And that's Not just a one-time thing. That's an all-the-time regular thing. And so, last or third, David focuses on the providence of God. The providence of God, verses 9 to 14. Hide not your face from me. 
Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. One of our greatest fears is the fear of rejection. It's the fear of not being chosen at all or being chosen and then later kicked to the curb. Experiencing rejection creates more than just an emotional response. When we're rejected by others, we feel it in a very physical way. Uh, Dr. Dean Ornish, who's a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, did a study on what happens when we're socially excluded. And he did this largely with uh, children and teens. And uh, his study had his participants playing this ball-tossing video game. And they were told that there's unseen players um, tossing the ball back to them with their own controllers. And when the unseen players, who are really just the video game program, when they stopped tossing the ball back, all the players felt rejected. When the ball wasn't shared with them, it activated the parts of their brain that register pain. And their brains respond the same way as if they experienced physical pain. At the conclusion of his study, he said, rejection doesn't just hurt like a broken heart. Your brain feels it like a broken leg. Now, David has been rejected. He's been rejected by the king. He's been rejected by many of his own people. He's been rejected by part of his family. He asserts that even if his own parents slam the door and turn their back on him, God will receive him. Verse 10, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Now, the Hebrew is a little wonky there, so it's not clear that his parents have already done this or this is a maybe do this. Um, but David recognizes even the, beyond the breaking point of the most committed promises of human love, parent and child, God's acceptance is even more steadfast. His promises never fail. His commitment is continuous. Even at our worst, God will never disown us. He's not changing the locks on the door. He's not going to write us out of his will, and he doesn't refuse to take our calls. He has promised never to leave us or forsake us. Whenever anxiety raises its head, we can be confident because with God beside us or behind us or before us, he can calm us. And David then declares with absolute certainty that he will indeed see the goodness of God. Verse 13. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. How does he know that his preferred destination would become his permanent destination? The only reason is the providence of God. That's God's controlling and sustaining power over all things. 
In the providence of God, there is the absolute assurance that all who love him here will love him there. As David wrote in Psalm 23, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Many people start out on a journey but don't get to their destination, either because of death or disease or disaster. But we can be confident that our journey will end with us gazing on God's glory and God's goodness in the land of the living where we will never die. So with all that said of what David teaches us from Psalm 23, the question is, how do we pray about this? How do we pray about this? When anxiety shows up, David is telling us to seek the Lord by redirecting our focus to the Lord through heartfelt prayer. Let's look again at these verses. Verse 7, prayer flows out of an awareness of our need. The fact is, we're totally dependent on the Lord. And we're often ignorant of the great extent of our need. And so we don't pray as we ought to. It seems that the Lord graciously brings us into situations where we get overwhelmed. And we get anxious and we realize if God doesn't come through, I may not make it. And that's the point. And that's true every day, not just in a crisis. You ever get tired of going through the motions of giving thanks for your food before you eat? It can become a meaningless ritual. But does it ever occur to you that if the Lord doesn't provide, you'd starve? We're dependent on the Lord for everything, for our next breath. Colossians 1.17 says, In him all things hold together. And yet we're so self-sufficient, we think we can handle everything uh, by ourselves, except, of course, for the really big crises. So we don't pray. The great Bible teacher of the early 20th century, Dr. G. Campbell Morgan, he was the guy at Westminster Chapel before uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones. And uh, he once had a woman come up to him after the service. And she asked him, Dr. Morgan, should we pray about everything in our lives or just about the big things? And in his very formal British manner, Dr. Morgan stiffened up and said, Madam, can you think of anything in your life that is big to God? Prayer flows when we become more aware of our total need for God in each and every aspect of our life. That's the first thing. Become aware that we actually need this. Second is that our prayer is our response to God based on his mercy. Our response to God based on his mercy. At the end of verse 7, David says, Be gracious to me and answer me. He doesn't say, Answer me because I'm such a good guy. I deserve it. In fact, verse 9 gives us an implied confession of sin when he asks the Lord not to turn away in anger. He knows the only way to approach God is through his abundant grace and mercy as it's shown to us in Christ. The sense of verse 8 is that God has invited David to seek his face, and David responds by doing it. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek? When we see God in all his splendor and beauty and majesty and holiness, and we recognize our own sinfulness, we become hesitant to draw near to him. 
But he graciously invites us to draw near. Hebrews 4.16 Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. While we should be looking for answers to our requests, prayer involves more than just bringing your shopping list to God. Prayer ought to be a seeking after God himself. A seeking of his face. David didn't want just answers. He wanted God. And then we see that prayer is linked with our obedience, especially in a time of trial. David's aware that it's easy to get out of line when you're under attack. It's easy to react to wrongs with retaliation or revenge. When somebody even insults us, we get defensive. And so he humbly asked the Lord to teach him his way and to lead him on a level path because of his foes. He has a teachable heart, and he's willing to do what the Lord showed him. We can't honestly pray to God for deliverance from an anxiety-producing situation if we aren't willing to learn what his will is and then to walk in his ways. God brings trials to teach us to obey him on a deeper level that we would have known apart from that trial. And in a trial, we need God to teach us his way. So when David's fears returned after his initial confidence, and we know they do because he wrote a whole bunch more psalms. And he talked about his fear and anxiety and worries again and again and again. So this is a repetitive prayer. We just picked one of them. But each time, David redirects his focus to the Lord in heartfelt prayer. And we can do the same thing. It just takes a little practice to become a psalmist. It takes a little practice to become a psalmist. The noted counselor, Dr. Ed Welch, recently wrote, I thought it was a great article, about him meeting with one of his friends. He doesn't say if it was a counseling session or he just got together. He wrote that his friend was going through the worst season of his life. His wife had left him. His daughter has been diagnosed with long COVID. There were other reasons to feel singled out, but relationships are important, and his had suffered greatly. When he spoke, he had a distinct rhythm. He would talk about pain that took his breath away. He might veer off into fears of being left alone. He would be sure to stop on his regrets. He occasionally mentioned he had moments when he was angry with God or at least perplexed by God's ways. Interspersed were fears that his daughter would have brain fog and body fatigue for years to come. Then he talked about God's faithfulness, how important scripture had become to him and his confidence in the Lord's presence with him. After he followed this pattern three times in ten minutes, I was captivated No matter where he began, he ended with rest in Jesus. I was listening to a psalmist. If you had heard isolated excerpts, you might have corrected those words that fell a little below the bar of theological orthodoxy. But psalmists are invited to speak unorthodox thoughts to the Lord. For example, we would certainly be Tempted to correct, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation, as God has already promised not to do that. And yet, in the Psalms, God teaches us to say such things. 
the middle of the psalm, a lot of psalms, is often filled with uncensored words that most of us would never speak to the Lord because they just seem so out of bounds. But the rule in those sections is your words have to come from your heart. They have to come from the real you. And then you come to the end of the psalm where the Lord seems to be especially interested in helping you out with your closing words. And here, orthodoxy reigns. You spoke words from your heart. Well done. Now end with words about God. What he has promised to you, what he has done for you, what he is doing in your life right now. Today, your mind may be a jumble of conflicting emotions and dark thoughts. They may fall short of being in the middle of your own personal psalm because you're not saying them to the Lord. Perhaps your first step could be to occasionally interrupt those thoughts by opening to the psalms and reading just about any final verse. And then try it again later. Tomorrow, speak some of those jumbled words to the Lord. He is honored to hear what's on your heart. And then practice saying your own closing words. Our King Jesus shared David's covenant confidence amidst much deeper hostilities. Jesus' foes advanced against him, and it was as if an army laid siege to his life, as we see in verses 2 and 3. They desired his death. They used false witness to bring violence against him, as we see in verse 12. And yet Jesus did not fear, but his confidence was in God, as we see in verse 3. His one thing, utterly consistent, was to be in the presence of God the Father, as we see in verses 4 and 8. And so he prayed, as we read Hebrews 5, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus prayed the Psalms. He quotes the Psalms more than any other part of the Old Testament. You can almost hear Jesus praying this psalm. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take courage and wait for the Lord. And he's saying the same to us. As we pray this psalm with him, we share his troubles, we learn his confidence, we strengthen our desire for God, and we persevere in prayer for our deliverance and our salvation. Psalm 27 doesn't give us a simple formula for overcoming anxiety. What we get is a way of life. Seeking the Lord is the way to overcome anxiety. If God gave us a formula, we'd use it, and then we'd forget about God until the next crisis. But seeking the Lord is an ongoing daily task. Years ago, there was a number of people in the jungles of Central Africa, and they responded to the gospel. And many people came to Christ, and since they had no uh, church or place to gather, they cleared a central spot in the jungle for that purpose. And soon, individual trails from many different directions would converge there as believers walk through the grass and through the jungle to get to that place of meeting with God. And whenever a Christian seemed to be losing his love for Jesus or his love for the gospel, 
the others would come alongside him and say, brother, the grass is growing on your path. What about your path? Is there grass growing on your path? Or are you seeking the Lord and his face each day? This is God's way to overcome your worries and your fears and your anxiety. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. You can start now. You should pray, and after a moment, I'll close. Let's pray together. As we did last week, I'm going to end with the Lord's Prayer. I'm probably going to do that all summer, so. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you and we confess our failure to consistently seek after you, to seek your face, to want to be in your presence. We don't mean to deny your providence in our lives, but we do. We don't mean to ignore your protection of us, but we do. We don't plan on forgetting to pray, but we do. Oh, Lord, we do believe. Help our unbelief. And, Lord, if anyone here this morning is living with fears and anxieties that overwhelm and hold them back, reveal yourself to them. Draw near to them. Show them your promises so they might place their faith in you. Help us to pray for them. And so work in each of our hearts this summer as we turn to the Psalms, as we learn about prayer, and draw us ever closer to the one who has taught us to pray. Join with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.